foibles of humanity, making predictions is one of the greatest. There's all kinds of predictions that have shown to be completely untrue when time comes. And it's religious humans in particular who seem to make stupid predictions about the end of the world. And predicting the end of the world has so far been a complete failure. We're still here. But all the predictions proving false doesn't seem to make people stop and pause about whether they should make such a prediction. In fact, most predictions that humans make about what's going to happen in the future turn out to be wrong. Uh, no kind of group of people I know are so consistently wrong as economists. Uh, they've been going through a very tough time recently and yet they keep making predictions and it doesn't seem to affect their career paths at all, the fact that they get it so consistently wrong. But there have been many false predictions of a religious nature about the end of the world. The Jehovah's Witnesses predicted that Jesus Christ would return in 1874. They then, after 1874, changed that prediction to 1914. When Jesus didn't turn up in 1914, they decided that he did turn up, only he came invisibly and was going to return later in 1925. When he didn't return in 1925, they predicted he was coming in 1975. When he didn't turn up in 1975, they said, well, a generation after 1914, he'll be here by 1994. That is the track record of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You might like to remember next time they come tacking on your door. They keep making this prediction and it doesn't prove to be true, but it never seems to stop them. But it's not just Jehovah's Witnesses. Do you remember the Korean group that uh, was meeting here in Sydney, in Gladesville, who predicted the end of the world on October the 28th, 1992? Uh, later the leader was found to have uh, taken some of the money I understand and invested it for future uh, returns after 1992 which was a slightly strange thing to do if you were actually thinking the world was going to end in 1992 and he was charged for fraud so I understand and then there's this year of course the American man Harold Camping who uh, in the States uh, put these... He's got 50 radio stations across America recording his stuff and he promised the world would come to an end on May the 21st of this year, uh, shortly afterwards he changed that date to October the 21st uh, this year, so we're still waiting for it. However, I wouldn't wait holding my breath for not the least of reasons is that this is about the third or fourth time Mr Camping has predicted the end of the world. He's been predicting the end of the world since the 1990s and he keeps just changing the date as we pass by on each occasion. Now those who study the scriptures properly will remember, of course, that the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that we will never know one day. Even he himself did not know the hour of the day of its coming. But those who make such predictions do have something going for them. They have a fervency in their watching for the return of Christ. They sell their position, possessions or more rationally, give them away. I mean, there's no point selling them because how will that help the people they sell them to? They give them away. They certainly stop planting their crops. They stop cleaning their houses. They stop going to school or to university. They say their farewells to uh, relatives and they seek to repent and are reconciled with their enemies and with their neighbours because they believe the Lord is coming. They are really watching for his arrival. 
But when the date comes and then goes, deep disillusionment sets in. After 1914, after 1925, huge numbers of Jehovah's Witnesses left the movement and it was cut back to but a core on each occasion. And those who have left leave with this deep sense of, of loss for they have suffered so much and there's a bitter pill of embarrassment about having been so deeply duped. But those who study the Bible and know that there is no date known to man when Christ will return, we're not duped into thinking that it's going to happen on this day or that day or some other day. In fact, of all the days in the future in which I think Jesus will not return, October the 21st when Mr Camping expects him is the day I expect Jesus won't return. Although I would not even rule that out as a possibility. We don't know when he will return. But our danger is, of course, not watching too much, but sleeping. So sure are we that we, he is coming, but so unsure of when, so sure are we that he's coming sometime, that we have this vague non-motivation. Okay, well, look, he'll come sometime. He hasn't come for 2,000 years. Why am I expecting him tomorrow or next week or next month or next year? And so we have a problem. Our problem is falling asleep. We think, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, he'll come sometime. And that, of course, is the great danger to be in. So here's the problem for a doomsday preacher. If you give the date, you'll keep awake but re-wrong. If you don't give a date, you'll be right but everybody falls asleep. And so either way, doomsday preachers have got very limited future, which is true as well. Now, one of the great doomsday preachers that we've just heard read to us is Zephaniah and chapter 1 with his prediction of God's judgment. You'll find it there on our Bibles in page 952. Very important to give you a Bible page reference at this point, especially if you're a newcomer, because the man who can find Zephaniah in one hit in opening his Bible is a man who's just had a very lucky experience. It's unusual for us to be able to find this book. It's that kind of book of the Bible, Zephaniah 1, page 952. For Zephaniah's prophesying in the time of Josiah, the king of Judah, and he's prophesying of the coming judgment of God. Now, Josiah reigned around about 640 to 609 BC. So Zephaniah is predicting the coming destruction that happened in the following generation when the Babylonians under Zerubbabel came, not Zerubbabel, under, uh, under um, Nebuchadnezzar, thank you, I get the right name, Zerubbabel's a good guy, Nebuchadnezzar's the bad guy, under Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem, Judah, and the temple in Jerusalem. It didn't happen in his lifetime. In fact, in his lifetime, in Josiah's time, the people were turning back to God as Josiah brought in reforms. Josiah's grandfather Manasseh was a wicked king who had ruled for many years and brought terrible, terrible abuses of, into God's people. And Josiah was cleaning up the act. But Josiah was killed in battle. And shortly after the nation returned to the ways of Manasseh and shortly after it was destroyed by the Babylonians. So a generation before the Babylonian destruction we have Zephaniah preaching to the people in the time when the king is trying to clean up the nation. 
Now, to understand this prophecy, we must remember what Jesus has called upon us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. It's not Harold, if you actually think like a child. It's not Harold be your name, or Harry for short. It's hallowed. It's a word that is not used in any other context I know except the Lord's Prayer. It means make holy. That's what it means. For God's name is more than a word. It's his reputation. It's his character, his honour, his glory. See, names are very important to us. They're more than just labels. I'm not just number 476. I'm Philip. I don't have a particular emotional attachment to my Medicare number or my tax file number. A, a number, but my name, I have a deep emotional attachment to. It's just as irrational. I could be called by a number, couldn't I? But I'm not I'm called by a name. And if you know me, you know my name. And if I know you, I know your name. And we don't like people forgetting our name. We feel like we're forgotten when people forget our name, when in fact what has happened is we just know somebody whose memory is not too good. I say this to excuse myself for, for having forgotten your name. But we don't, like, we don't like it when our name is misspelt. I've spent my life correcting people on the spelling of the word Philip. It's got two L's on my occasion. And so, but every time it's spelt with one L, you think, I'll just put another little L in there to make, because we want our name to be remembered. We don't like people making jokes about our name because whatever joke we've, they make, we've always heard it before, haven't we? There is just a limited number of jokes and it's always painful when people make jokes of your name. For names tell us so much about a person. They tell us of their ethnicity. They tell us of their religion. Uh, Muhammad is not a common name amongst Christians. It's Christians, not a particularly common name amongst Buddhists. It, it tells you something of a person. It tells you of their social class. It can tell you of the period of history that they live in. There are certain names like Arthur, which my father had and was the tail end of a popularity about a hundred years ago, lots of children were called Arthur, and today it's, well, tomorrow it'll come back in, I'm not sure Arthur will come back as a name, but it tells you a period, of, it tells you of certain conservative characters and, and class characters and the radical nature of the parents because there are some very weird names given by famous people to their children today in order to make their children suffer, I think it is. <laughs> Israel was God's people and Israel bore God's name. They were the people of Yahweh and they were not to blaspheme his name if you remember the Ten Commandments. Blaspheming the name just doesn't mean using it carelessly, it means taking it upon yourself and then living to God's discredit. You blaspheme God's name because you are the person of Yahweh but you do not live like one of Yahweh's people. And so you blaspheme God's name. You bring not honour upon God and his name, but discredit and dishonour upon God and his name. That is blaspheming his name. And we still have that sense of dishonour and discredit concerning names, family names and families. Israel, as God's people, the people of Yahweh, were to be a holy people demonstrating God's name, his reputation to all the world by the way in which they lived in a distinctive lifestyle, not like any of the other nations of the world. And so God allowed his name not only to be placed upon Israel, 
so that he was the God of Israel, and Israel was Yahweh's nation, but also on the temple and the city, the temple in Jerusalem and the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. But the people kept on defiling the name of God and defiling the city by the way in which they lived and defiling the very temple of God by the way in which they falsely worshipped God in that temple. And so listen how it's described about in Manasseh's sins in 2 Kings chapter 21 where we're told he built altars in the house of the Lord, in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. See, God's name was associated. I've skipped a verse or two. Uh, Those pictures will come up later, thank you. We've got to skip down to a couple of verses and you're going to have to backtrack because you're very clever of the PowerPoint, aren't you? But there should be a verse about he built altars in his name. And again, another verse in 2 Kings 21, verse 7, he, the carved images of the Asherah, the false gods of the Baal, that he made, he set in the house which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. You go into Jerusalem, it's the city of Yahweh. You go into the temple, it's the temple of Yahweh. And yet, Manasseh put gods of other names into the very temple. This was a horrible blasphemy against the name of God and against God himself. It was an exhibition of shameless sinfulness. Now, our society has lost the horror of sin and cannot imagine how appalling this all is. This morning, I travelled behind a couple of buses advertising these radio personalities and one had one advertisement the other had the other advertisement the parallel advertisement I was behind two I couldn't change lanes I was stuck between two buses that made the same advertising except it was two different slightly different ads on the one had the couple dressed in leather entitled born to be wild there is an attitude to life you see I've been born to be wild but it's clearly wild in a moral and immoral decadent sense because the other one had on it original sin and there they are smiling and enjoying and holding an apple which shows they haven't read the bible properly because it's not an apple in the bible but the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but you get the indication it's talking about sin and it's a wink nod and isn't it fun because we're the people born to be wild we're the people who enjoy original sin See, our society has no sense of the horror of sin, of the appalling consequences of sin. For all that is horrific in this world, all the disasters of this world are caused by sin, by the original sin. You see the pictures of Somalia at the moment with the hordes of people Women, I don't know where the men are, they're still backfighting, I presume, carrying these poor little babies who are dying of starvation as the women are dying of starvation. That's sin. That's what was caused by man and women eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Millions are going to die in these coming weeks because of sin. And So sinful is the society that though there are people trying to send relief in their 
the armies are not allowing the relief, the food, to get through to these hordes and hordes of people dying of starvation. That's sin. That's awful. That's horrible. That's not wink, wink, nod, nod, can't we get more advertisers to pay attention to our radio station where we're going to make fun and have a happy life. They're not addressing the realities of the world, of people, of the refugees who are desperate, so desperate to get into Australia that they'll perish on the seas in terrible boats having lost all their money because of the sinfulness of humanity. The horror of sin has been lost to us. Understand what Zephaniah then is talking about. For verses 4 and 5 he says, God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and swear by Milcom. Here is the idolatry of serving the Baals as well as Yahweh. The Baals were the fertility gods of Canaan who practiced with sacred prostitutes. Here is the stupidity of astrology, bowing down to the stars of heaven and thinking that your future is caught up in the movement of the stars. Here is the syncretism of worshipping Moloch, or Milcom is called here, and Yahweh, uh, Molech Milcom demanded that children be sacrificed to him every day in order to bring any blessings that might come upon you. A sacrificing of children that Yahweh, of course, found, as we find, I hope and trust, abhorrent that that is what is required of you. Or again, look at the description of sin in verse 8. And on that day the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials of the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I'll punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. The foreign clothes and the dress standards by which Israelites were aping their neighbours. Instead of being different, instead of wearing what they should wear, they were desperate to be like all the other nations around about. And so they followed the local customs, some I don't understand properly about leaping over the doorsteps, but following the sinful patterns that we do understand of bringing into the house of God and the house of their king violence and fraud. Here is the pattern of the sinful world, the pattern that we can see to this very day, the world of injustice and immorality, the world of religious idolatry and superstition. We still have astrology. We still have temples with syncretism of modern relativism. We still have the stupidities of people who will call themselves Christian Buddhists or interfaith services which worship whatever God you wish to think of at the time. There is still this blasphemy of God and his name. But in Zephaniah's day, they were supposed to be Yahweh's people. This was supposed to be Yahweh's city. This was supposed to be Yahweh's temple. And yet they were worshipping like this. And so is promised the day of the Lord. Remember that the word of the Lord is Yahweh. That's what it means. This is the day of Yahweh. And what will it be like? Well, it'll be a day of terrible judgment and destruction, especially on the city of Jerusalem, the city of God especially upon the temple of God. They thought they'd be safe because they were living in Yahweh's city. They'd be safe because they'd be living in Yahweh's temple. But that is particularly the place that God is going to clean up because it is his city, 
because it is his temple. That is where judgment commences. So verse 2 and 3, look at the magnitude of this destruction coming upon the world because of Jerusalem. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble and the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. And look down to verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of Yahweh is near, and Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And so the rulers in verse 8 are going to be condemned. And the commercial quarters in verses 11 and 12, all those who traders, they're going to be wiped away as well. And God is going to be searching out everybody in verse 12 for the destruction that he speaks of in verses 13 and 18. They build houses but will not inhabit them. They have vineyards but they will never drink from them. For great is the day of the Lord, near and hastening fast. The sound is coming. And look what it's described as in verse 15, the day of wrath, of distress, of ruin, of devastation, of darkness and of gloom, of dark clouds and thick darkness. It's going to be an awful day, this day of the Lord. Chapter 1 seems to give us no hope for the future. But chapter 2 introduces a perhaps clause. So in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2 you see, gather together, yes, gather all you shameless nation. Before it happens, before it takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before the coming of the burning of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord all you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord. And the people are to be gathered together to reflect and to hear while there is still time. With the promise of verse 3, perhaps those who are humble, those who are in humility, just may be rescued, may be hidden from the judgment. Humble's a nice word. Humility's not so nice. Humiliated is even worse, isn't it? I don't mind being humble, but could God please do it without humiliating me? That is not likely, is it? It's, it's as unlikely as being given patience quickly. You just can't get certain things. You can't be humble without humiliation. And that's what they need. Seek righteousness, those who are humble, and seek humility, those who seek to do justice and keep God's cans. Perhaps this dreadful thing that is going to happen, you may be spared. It's all you can do. It's the right thing to do. And perhaps God will be kind and merciful. Zephaniah's warning to Jerusalem and Judah was God's warning of judgment on the city and the temple, a warning that apparently fell on deaf ears. Josiah and others took action, but his son Jehoahaz returned to the sinful ways of Josiah's grandfather Manasseh, and within a few short years, the doomed prophecy of Zephaniah came true, and Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple was destroyed. Yet in the fall of Jerusalem, we have a warning of the day of greater judgment that was yet to come. For in the death of Jesus, there came a day of the Lord with this awful outpouring of God's just wrath, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness. 
And in the return of the Lord Jesus, there will come the day of the Lord with further judgment. And that will be a day of wrath and anguish, ruin and gloom and blackness and deep distress. And God's temple will once more be at the centre of it all. For Jesus is and was the temple of the Lord where God met man and where God's name was pleased to dwell and upon whom the sin of the world was laid and the just wrath of God was concentrated. And the temple now in this world is not a building in Jerusalem with a wailing wall, but is the gathering of God's people. Is you, is me, if we are the Christian people. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told individually that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 3, we're told corporately that as we gather together as the church of God, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We must live differently, we who bear the name of Yahweh. We must live distinctively differently. We mustn't be like the people around about us, but live a life that shows forth the character and name, the reputation of Yahweh. For the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ goes with the reputation of his people. And we bring honour upon the Lord Jesus Christ or dishonour upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We mustn't defile God's temple with fights amongst ourselves or with idolatry or with immorality. For God's judgment will be worldwide in verse 2 and verse 3. God's judgment is everywhere. And in verse 18, the silver, the gold will not deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In fire and in his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And God's judgment starts with the temple of God. Many people in Zephaniah's day lived with false certainty, with a false security of people in every day, the false security of those who are in power and comfort and wealth. It was only a year ago, and all the rulers of North Africa and the Middle East safe and secure, ready to reign for another generation. And today, half of them are gone and the other half look very shaky. Kingdoms and empires fall with incredible speed. The British Empire at the end of the Great War lived on to recover for the Second World War, which they won, and yet by the end of the next few decades, the empire collapsed. Will America recover from its own greed and arrogance at the moment? Are we moving beyond the American century? Is it over? The Russian, the USSR collapsed, the Eastern Bloc collapsed overnight. Just in the 80s, it was there and then it was no more. In Zephaniah's day, the people were complacent. Verse 12, drunk in the footnote, you'll see. People who believed that the Lord would do nothing. Verse 12, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. God's an irrelevance. And they are the ones who will lose their goods, their houses, their vineyards. And their silver, their gold will not protect them. And in our own time, people imagine that nothing can happen to us. As the Apostle Peter wrote, they'll say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. And so they're not watching, but sleeping. 
secure in the knowledge that nothing could happen to us. We're safe, secure, established, permanent. And so we ignore the warnings of Scripture, of God coming like a thief in the night, suddenly, unexpectedly, swiftly, when we least expect it. Now, I don't want to teach you how to be a thief. But let me tell you, don't send out warning messages. Whatever you do, the essence of theft is to do it by surprise. Especially go for people in their arrogance and confidence who do not take preparation against theft. No locks, no alarms, no neighbourhood watch. They ignore the warnings of history that mighty empires disappeared, that wealthy nations have been reduced to poverty. Remember the famous poem by Shelley, I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretched far away. But we who know Christ have a certainty, true certainty of the things to come. We know of the judgment day that is prefigured in Babylon and the conquest of Jerusalem and the conquest of Babylon by the Persians. We know of the judgment day that commences with Jesus' death and resurrection and we know that it's more than perhaps that we can be saved on the final day for we know the certainty of our salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we will never be caught in this blasphemous arrogance of thinking in our hearts, the Lord will never do anything good or ill. We know that he has done so much to Tyre and Edom, to Babylon and Nineveh, to Rome and and Athens, to Jerusalem, his own city and temple, and especially for our sake in the death of his son. And he has promised to do more. It's easy to be wise in hindsight. The Bible gives us the opportunity to be wise in foresight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus and for the promise of his return. Thank you for the salvation that he's won for us already. And thank you for the judgment that he will bring to this world. We pray, Heavenly Father, for our city and our land that people would wake up to the message of prophecy that has been given through Zephaniah and through the Lord Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.